I'm going to be finishing up today with arguments for the existence of God. Uh, the three we've covered are the three most prominent. The cosmological argument, the argument from design, and today the, the moral argument. Excuse me a second, I'll get this pulled up. Um, there are many more, though. Um, Peter Kreeft, who is a, he's a Roman Catholic uh, philosopher and apologist, in his book, Handbook of Apologetics, lists about 20. Um, a lot of them, of course, could be categorized together, but one that's sort of off to the side that, that I always want to cover, but you really don't have time, and it's not one of the major ones, but I think it's significant. It's the argument from beauty or from aesthetics, and this is the idea that the fact that human beings appreciate and create beauty is certainly an indication that we're completely different from the animal kingdom. I don't know of any, uh, even apes or dolphins, that contemplate beautiful sunsets or create magnificent cathedrals or make paintings. Yeah, you can put a paintbrush into the trunk of an elephant and it'll slap paint on a, on a canvas and you can use that for a fundraiser and it might have some intriguing qualities to it, but the elephant has no idea what he's doing. So, so the fact that we make and appreciate beautiful things is an argument for something that you could call beauty uh, beyond our mundane existence. And, and unless you're a Platonist who actually believes things like beauty, goodness, and truth subsist in and of themselves somewhere in a transcendent realm, that is an argument for a God who actually is beautiful. So there are many more arguments for God's existence. And I believe what all of them really do is gather things from our experience as human beings and speak to us about the presence of God. It's kind of like with the, again, the Roman Catholic uh, poet and priest, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, wrote in The Grandeur of God. He said, the, the world is full of the grandeur of God, and it will flame out like shining from shook foil. And, and we gather these things and we, can, and we can put them in order and, and we can show them to somebody and say, look, you know there is a God. Um, I think apologetics actually is evangelism. And so what we're doing in the arguments for God's existence, you could call preparation. And we'll finish this preparation today. Not next week. Next week we have the annual meeting. But the week after that, then we'll go on to the foundation, which is the truth and the reliability of the Bible for proclaiming the truth and the good news. But our argument today is how does our concern about right and wrong show that God is there? Typically when you state an argument, it's stated not God is there, but that there is a God. And I deliberately worded differently because although it does prove that there is a God or that God exists, when we put it that way, it does sound like a bare abstraction. Sure, there is a God. 90% of the people in the world actually acknowledge that in some way, shape, or form. But when you say God is there, I think it shows that we ourselves 
at least I'll include myself in that, need these arguments, so to speak, to, to reassure us. They are means, again, I believe, that God engenders and sustains our faith. So it doesn't show merely that there is a God who might be indifferent, but that God is there and he is present with us and cares about us. And I do believe the arguments for God's existence show this. This is sometimes what is called natural theology. It's working with what's called general revelation to discover and exposit what can we know about God simply from, from universal human experience. So everybody knows there's a God, and, and this is one of the reasons why. Um, this is from, we all know this, this is from the evening prayer. wanted to pull up my Bible, um, my Book of Common Prayer, and, and read this. This is the confession from the Book of Common Prayer for the evening service in the daily office. And it goes like this. It says, Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent. According to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. So you probably weren't aware that there actually is an argument for God's existence embedded in this prayer. Because although there are lots of non-Christians who would deny the truth of a lot of that, what they might not deny, and which actually they can't deny, is this part. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. We ought and, and we ought not. And everyone thinks and feels this way. Everyone. Except with a possible accession of sociopathic serial killers, which, thank God, are blessedly few. And these are people who are, are faulty and damaged uh, way beyond normal human beings and who are sometimes described as conscienceless. Now, I don't know if that's the case. I'm not a psychologist, and I'm certainly not a behavioral profiler. But it applies to everyone else, and it might apply to them too. Somewhere deep down, covered up, seared, burnt maybe, but I think they have a sense of we ought and we ought not. It is an ineradicable part of humanness. It expresses it way even in politics and popular culture. So in, in popular culture, self-help books are just like one of the major categories in a bookstore. 
So we believe we ought to work out more. We ought to lose weight. We ought to be better parents. We ought to be more successful. We ought to do this. We ought to do that. And we feel bad and we get back on our Peloton and we cycle even harder when we haven't done it. Why do people do this? Now, you could say in some sense if they're religious, they're trying to earn their own salvation. But what if they're not religious? Well, they're still trying to do that. But it's more like they're simply trying to justify their own existence. I deserve to be here because I have done X, fill in the blanks. In politics, I don't want to get into a political argument, but woke political culture is all about doing what you ought to do. So you, you ought to save the planet from global warming. And I'm not going to digress too much. You know, you ought to be more tolerant. You ought to promote racial justice. You ought to promote social justice. Ought, 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 ought. And boy, if you don't do it, <coughs> if you left undone what you ought to have done, uh, you will hear about it on Twitter. Uh, the Me Too culture is all about, well, you've done what you ought not to do. And so this idea of we ought and we ought not is, it's ubiquitous and it's everywhere. And the question is, where does we ought and we ought not come from? All human beings feel and act as though right and wrong are real things. Question is, where did we get this sense of moral law or duty, and to whom are we obligated to fulfill it, and to whom do we feel responsible when we don't fulfill it? Now, if you're, if you're part of a culture or part of a group, well, you might feel responsible or guilty to the group. Paul wrote about this too. In Romans 2, 14 and 15, he wrote, When Gentiles, that's all of us, unless you have a Jewish mother, when Gentiles who do not have the Torah, that is the law of Moses, do by nature things required by the law, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciousness also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Uh, a deeper psychology about what goes on in the human heart, about what we ought to do and what we ought not to do, you will not find. And Paul says that so that his audience, Jew and Gentile alike, will understand if you have the written law, if you don't have the written law, you in fact are guilty before a holy God. I'm not sure if he used this argument with the philosophers at Athens, but I can conjecture that he did. Of course, the account would have been truncated by, by Luke the evangelist. But Paul spent the whole day arguing with philosophers, Stoics and Epicureans, in the, in the Areopagus at Athens, and I find it hard to believe that the question of ethics did not come up. It was a big deal for Plato and Aristotle, and it was a big deal in Greek philosophy. So everybody has this sense of ought and ought not. C.S. Lewis took this in Mere Christianity <coughs> and developed it into a, a colloquial argument. His is very conversational, and he's almost telling a story about 
right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. That's the title of the chapter. So I've reduced it to a series of statements which lead up to a conclusion, but it's not actually a syllogistic argument, although it is in order from how he states it in the book. So there is an objective moral law which all human beings feel we ought to obey. Uh, He'll spend a lot of time clarifying what he means by moral law, but I'll just leave it at that, that we have a sense that things should be a certain way. Animals don't have this. They just are. They do what they do. They don't have an idea of moral value or moral duties. We do not always keep this moral law, though we believe we ought to. And that's why we have guilt feelings. We feel responsibility and discomfort for something or someone when we do keep the moral law, when we do not keep the moral law. The moral law, therefore, must be something above and beyond the facts of human behavior. We don't keep it. Animals don't keep a moral law either because they don't have one. They, they simply do what they do. And if you observe human behavior, you will see us doing a lot of things. And if you were aliens taking a survey, you would say, oh, well, apparently humans uh, enjoy and approve of violence a great deal because they do it all the time. Uh, I mean, they do it in their families. They do it in their cities. They do it in their countries. Sometimes they have really big you know, exercises of violence, and they call that a war. I, I read somewhere, I don't remember where, and it doesn't matter because it's got to be true, that there have been only about six months of peace in the whole history of humankind. I mean, there's a war going on somewhere right now. Well, there's one in Yemen. Um, I'm sure there's other, you know, <coughs> low-level wars going everywhere all the time, not to mention civil violence. So there is this fact that we don't keep this moral law, but we feel we ought to. At the United Nations, they quote Isaiah about beating our swords into plowshares. This is something we ought to do, but we don't. And the difference between the is and the ought cannot be explained by materialism or Darwinian evolution, and I'll come back to that later. So there must be something above or beyond the facts of human behavior because we know we're not doing what we should do. The moral law must come from somebody or somebody or something beyond the material universe because you, you cannot examine it empirically, this sense of ought, and be more like a mind than it is like anything else we know since we can hardly imagine feeling obligation, responsibility, and discomfort toward mere matter. Uh, I don't apologize to the universe. I don't apologize to mountains. Um, I will occasionally apologize to my dog because I don't take him for walks often enough, but I'm not sure it's a sin, but maybe it is. But we feel obligated uh, towards somebody because we can't imagine that lifeless, inanimate matter is something we should feel responsible for. And this is C.S. Lewis talking, and I agree. Now, some people have criticized his moral argument, and it's true, it's not really airtight philosophy. But it is a good story, and I think it's a generally true story. So finally, he says, therefore, there is someone who is the moral lawgiver toward whom we are morally responsible, and that is God. 
Now, he immediately deals with objections because people will object to this. Um, there are some serious, you know, not hypercritical, but serious philosophers will say, well, you need to do this and you need to do that. But we're talking about objections of people who want to dismiss the whole idea. So he deals with some of them. First of all, culture differs in moral codes, so there is no universal moral law. And so he answers by saying, well, the differences are exaggerated. This is true. And there is a great deal of cross-cultural disagreement. And as a matter of fact, even though we as Gentiles don't have the Torah, but we're aware of it now, and a lot of people have never heard of the Ten Commandments, consider the last five of these commandments. Honor your parents. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal, don't lie, and don't be desperate to get what your neighbor has or don't covet. There is no civilization on earth and in history that has ever dismissed these things offhand. And they are part of just about every ethical system that has ever existed. In addition, some version of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is present in every major religion and also in every or most ethical systems. And so the idea that somehow moral law is culturally relative is hugely exaggerated. And if we even say there are differences, because there are, that, that doesn't mean that necessarily every culture's customs are equivalent. I won't go into this argument too much, but cultural revel, uh, relativism pretty much argues that there's no such thing as moral progress. You can't actually get better since there's no such thing as better, there's just different. And that flies in the face of, again, what we feel ought to be. We feel like we ought to get better. And we also know we don't. And there has, on occasion, been major moral improvement. Uh, this country before the 60s was embedded in systematic racism and injustice. Before the Civil War, slavery <coughs> was legal in half the country. And we had decided as a culture, and we had a lot of conflict about it, that these things were wrong and we ought not do them. And now we don't. So the differences are exaggerated, and there really is a lot of cross-cultural disagreement. And that, uh, I mean, agreement. And you can focus on the Ten Commandments to see how much. There's, there's no culture that glorifies theft. Well, okay, ours does. But that's just in movies and Hollywood and heist films and stuff like that. You know what I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, what you call moral law is just our herd instinct. It's, it's what we want to do. There are deeper problems with this than C.S. Lewis has said, but I'll just say what he says right now. An instinct is a strong feeling or desire to act in a certain way. He mentions, you know, eating, your appetite, your, your sex drive, and other things. He says, but often the moral law prods you to do something against your feelings and desires. So you see someone in distress and they need help. 
well, you're risking, you might be risking your life to do that, but the, the moral law would prod you to help that person if you are able. And people do, but sometimes they don't. Uh, we celebrate people who go, at least go out of their way to help others. Um, and so the moral law can't be the herd instinct because sometimes it tells you to act against your instinct. And then finally, he says, moral law is just social convention that we are taught. Now, some moral stipulations are kind of social conventions. We drive on the right side of the road. That is a social convention. And if you insist on driving on the left side of the road, well, you, you, you are breaking the law. And you are kind of being immoral because you're either doing it because you don't care about other people's safety or because you're drunk. So you could say that you're just disobeying a social convention. But other things are not just so conventional. What C.S. Lewis points to is what is called, he doesn't call it this, it's called the genetic fallacy. This is the idea that if you have explained where something comes from, then, well, then it can't be true. I know that sounds odd, but that really is what the genetic fallacy is. So we were taught morals so they can't be true. Well, sure, you're taught morals. Uh, you tell your kids to say please and thank you. You tell them to share their toys uh, because human beings are sinful and flawed and little children, particularly ones who have not reached the age of accountability, which is not a definite cutoff, uh, do not understand that they really do have moral obligations. They may have a sense of guilt. They may have a sense of vague sense of maybe I should do this, maybe I should, but they do have to be taught. But they have to be taught mathematics too. And this is C.S. Lewis's example. And mathematics is real. It's a real thing. Morals might have to be taught in particular in a society, but they are real things. He does not go back any further in his explanations, but, but I will. So as a matter of fact, most cultures and most ethical systems have expressed some way to deal with those last five commandments. Well, how did that ever start? <clears throat> so if you go back either historically or uh, within our own human being, somehow or another, we feel that these are things we ought and ought not do. And we teach them to our children. That doesn't make them unreal. There is an alternative story. Uh, C.S. Lewis gives his argument in a, in a conversational, uh, almost story-like form. And it's really good, and I, I recommend reading uh, Mere Christianity just for that uh, reason. But there's another story, and it's, it's common, it's sometimes well-known, but not quite as well-known. It's the story of the origin of morality in evolutionary psychology and sociobiology. This is uh, the attempt to explain uh, human individual behavior and behavior in groups by evolution, by Darwinian processes. And I'll, I'll give you a, boy, this is going to be incredibly brief, and those of you who know your evolution will, will know that. But so what is, what are the processes of Darwinian evolution? So here we are in the ancient Serengeti plain, and we have short-necked giraffes. Well, everybody knows giraffes have tall necks. I saw some yesterday myself. So, so they're, 
there's, there's been a drought and grass is not available and they've already eaten all the stuff on the lower limbs of trees. But at some point, and of course this happens very gradually and I'm going to cover uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of years in an instant, a mutation occurs in which a giraffe gets a longer neck. We're compressing time here in the story. And so if that's the case, that genetic mutation would allow that giraffe to reach up higher on the trees, get vegetation, and survive better than short-necked giraffes. So the, genet- the, the short-necked giraffes are, are going to be selected for extinction. Natural selection is euphemistic sometimes for well, just death or survival. And so genetic mutation plus natural selection equals adaptation or evolution. So we'll get rid of all our short-necked giraffes and we will have only long-necked giraffes. I'm not saying I believe that's the story of how we got long-necked giraffes. I consider this a just-so story, but that's kind of how it would be described. Of course, that's very brief and compressed. So if you apply this to human psychology, this is the story. According to the Darwinian story, (coughs) one of our evolutionary ancestors experienced a mutation which caused a feeling or belief that he ought or ought not to do some behavior. Perhaps he acquired the feeling that he ought to share his food or he ought not club his neighbor to death. Whatever the case. Now, some would also mention genetic drift as opposed to simple genetic mutation, but I don't want to go there. But all things in evolution happen at the level of your genes. And if evolution actually happens, this is where it happens, at the level of your genetic makeup. So there was a genetic alteration that all of a sudden, now I believe I should share my food or I should not club my neighbor to death. So eventually, uh, this, uh, this feeling or belief gave our ancestor a survival advantage over his fellow creatures. I don't know how, and that's going to be a problem. Who did not have this particular mutation? So if you had this idea that you should share your fruit and not club your neighbor to death, somehow you would survive to reproduce your offspring and pass that along to your descendants. So he would then be more likely to survive and pass on this mutation to his offspring. Over our evolutionary history, our ancestors acquired a number of mutations which caused similar feelings of ought and ought not. And the accumulation of these mutations has now resulted in the moral sense we now have. Now I admit that's compressed, uh, but I think it's fair. Uh, if, If you could reduce evolutionary psychology and sociobiology into a couple of paragraphs, I think that is a fair summation. Well, there's problems with that story. Here's the first one, big gaps. First of all, it's mentioned in the book in more detail, a materialist approach cannot account for mental events. Uh, There is a thing called theistic evolution, and I don't want to start down that road because I'll never come back. But as a matter of fact, Darwin himself and Darwinians today do not believe that evolution is guided by anybody or anything other than random chance and natural law, chance and necessity. So it's 
strictly a material process, and there is no there is no good explanation for how consciousness and conscious can come from strictly material processes. Your thoughts, whether they are moral or conceptual, are not equivalent to your brain chemistry. And there is no, whatever you have read, there is no neuroscience that proves that there is. There's a really good book uh, by uh, Mario Beauregard, he is a neuroscientist at the University of Montreal called The Spiritual Brain. And he goes into this in quite a bit of detail. And so your mind and consciousness are not a mechanism of the brain. You can't study them physically like cell division and photosynthesis. So there are just so stories. And if you read any of these stories carefully, sometimes they're even couched in scientific language, but they are not scientific. They're what are called hand-waving arguments, like you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. You know, this, this, is, this is really the Wizard of Oz. This is really science, but no, it's not. And there are promises that research will solve the problem of consciousness. Well, problem, there's, there's no problem of consciousness unless you insist that everything is matter and energy, and, and then you have a problem. That in itself is a fascinating thing, but I'll have to pause there. Under the aspect of natural selection, altruistic behavior makes no sense. A mutation for self-sacrifice or even major inconvenience hinders your own survival. So you feel compelled to give away your food to people who need it. Well, you're, gonna, you're more likely to die. And then you won't pass on that mutation to the next generation. Without God and Darwinian evolution, nothing is more valuable to a person than his life and his survival to reproduce offspring. But sacrifice of life or livelihood to benefit others happens often enough. No, everybody doesn't do it and it doesn't happen every day, but it does happen. And we so deeply regard it as an admirable moral value that it needs a better explanation than natural selection can provide. So those, that's the other story. And I mention that because their story is actually going to prove the second part of William Lane Craig's moral argument for God, which is based on the moral argument of William Sorley, who was a late 19th, early 20th century philosopher. <clears throat> So his is very simple. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Well, the evolutionists have pretty much done his work for him there. They say, many of them, most of them explicitly, well, there are no objective moral values. They don't exist apart from any human being, and they're simply part of our evolutionary psycho psychological makeup. They aren't objective. They don't apply to all people at all times and in all places. They are just what we feel we ought to do, and they were just an aid to survival. So if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. But objective morals, values, and duties do exist. Everybody knows they exist. This is one of those... Uh, moral, uh, the moral argument is one of those arguments which uh, I've said about the other arguments. They are reminders for you to remember what you ought to know and that you do, in fact, know. 
But we'll come back to that number two. Therefore, God exists. So, to say their objective moral values is to say something is good or evil independently of whether any human being believes it or not. So, you might believe, uh, might not believe that torturing babies for fun and profit is not immoral. You would be mistaken. Okay? And most people believe that it is. So if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. If God does not exist, we would just be the accidental byproducts of evolution. There is no reason to believe that humans are anything special or different from other animals. We could no more condemn theft, rape, and murder as evil than we do for analogous behavior among animals. We don't call it theft, rape, and murder. We just call it what they do. So a lion... uh, Ripping apart and eating a zebra on the Serengeti Plain is not murder. It's just eating. Uh, a, a monkey taking the food from another monkey is not theft. It's just what they do. There is the equivalent of rape, too, in the animal kingdom. We can also not praise kindness, generosity, and love as good because these are objective things, a standard by which we assess someone's behavior and either blame or praise them. Well, you can't do that because we don't blame or praise animals for doing what they do. Even if dogs become violent, and there was a really sad case in Louisville this past week, <coughs> last week, uh, we, and I think rightly so, usually blame the owner for either uh, training that animal to be violent or not controlling it. Objective moral values and duties do exist. Universal moral experience and personal introspection reveal that things like rape, child abuse, torture, and murder are not just socially unacceptable, they're moral abominations, to put it the way Dr. Craig puts it. And kindness, generosity, and love are really good. They are not just subjective feelings that we have about certain things or things that we prefer to have done to us and not other things preferred. In moral experience, we apprehend objective moral values as much as we apprehend objectively existing objects in sensory experience. Therefore, God does exist. Does anybody have any questions at this point about the moral argument? I got one more thing I'm going to wrap up this whole section with, but does anybody have any questions about the moral argument? So when I get that reaction in class, either one of two things has happened. Either it's perfectly clear or it's just totally muddied and you have absolutely no clue whatsoever. So is it, is it perfectly clear? So, yes, Robbie. I mean, how, how is okay, it argued? The, the question is, is how, how did we inherit our sinful nature, which is related to the question of where does our soul come from? Um, I'm uh, basically a traditionist. I think you get your soul from your parents. Um, how does that happen? I have no idea, and neither does anybody else. Okay? I'm serious. And if you, if you think it about it too much, it's one of those things like time, which even Augustine admits. You, everybody knows what time is until you try to explain it to somebody else. Well, what is time? 
The only good explanation I've heard is it's God's way of keeping everything from happening at once. Seriously, I'm serious about this. Uh, the same thing with other very fundamental concepts like, like space. What is space? The separation of objects. Well, if you're Einstein, then space is an actual thing and it can be bent and curved. The problem with the question of where did sin come from and so then where do we get our moral sense also is the question of how do we get our souls uh, and what is the absolute origination of sin. The only thing I have to say about the absolute origination of sin is that in God's mind, and you have to trust him on this one, that's what faith is all about, trusting God for things you don't know because you do know other things, is that God's idea of a good world involves the possibility of evil. And I really do believe that's almost the only thing you can say about that. Because you could say, well, Satan tempted Adam and Eve. Well, how did Satan fall? Out of his own pride. Well, where did that come from? So I, I hope you understand the point. I'm not trying to evade the question. I'm just saying the question is like one of those questions like, well, why is the Trinity like that and what is time? Fundamental concepts that explain everything else sometimes are often difficult to explain. Uh, did that help any? It just seems like the sinful nature comes from the same source as the moral nature, wherever it comes from. Well, our, our brokenness, yes, our, the, the damage to our soul as well as our bodies are inherited from our parents. Um, and I can tell you, the older, older you get, the more you experience and believe in the fall. Is Just, yes, Tiffany. Yes, everybody has a conscience and some of them mess it up. Oh, sure, you would be surprised at the scathing moral statements uh, about what other people do that atheists sometimes make. Uh, Richard Dawkins, who is Mr. Atheist, you know, excoriates Christians for being, you know, homophobic, racist, et cetera, like that. So obviously he disapproves of those things. And maybe occasionally he does things that bother his conscience. Conscience, two things. One is it's not perfect and it's not inviolable. Uh, even Paul says uh, you can sear your own conscience. How do you do that? Well, by doing behavior over and over again that you know is wrong just because it gives you some advantage. And eventually you become numb in that area. Just, you know, if you bang your head against the wall long enough, it might not hurt anymore. So don't try that. I'm not actually <laughs> suggesting you do that. Did you have a question, John? Well, both are not. Uh, your consciousness and your mind and mental events are not material. Uh, I, I believe we are constantly connected with the transcendent world through our soul. It's just, you know, we see through a, a we see as in a mirror dimly. And I think, I think, I think Nick, somebody pointed out last week, maybe it was Nick, uh, mirrors back then were just polished bronze. Uh, I mean, then they were real fuzzy. So uh, your, your soul, your mental events, your thinking, your, your, your moral conscience are, are part of your soul and your soul is non-material. So I am somewhat of a dualist, and I believe you are an embodied soul. And I think we're meant to be a unity, and death breaks that unity apart, which was meant to be, and that's restored in the resurrection. But, but your, your soul is the seat of, of your moral sense, 
uh, and not your brain. Uh, your brain and your mind are obviously connected, but they are not the same. Really quickly, I just want to sum up all these arguments by saying what kind of God do these arguments point to? God is transcendent, he is personal, he is sovereign, and he is good. Now, this is, this is not <coughs> the full revelation of God that comes through the prophets and through Jesus Christ. Uh, but I would argue that a description of God like this really only fits with the God of Judaism and the God of Christianity. Anyway, thank you very much. In two weeks, we'll come back to the Bible is true and reliable.